Heavenly Father, thank you for the Song of Songs. Thank you for the last couple of weeks. Thank you for today's passage as we see the wedding, as we think about true love. Teach us, please, to love in the way that Jesus loved us, that we may do this in our relationships with each other, that we may do this in our marriages. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I need a little little clicky thing as well. Here we go. How much does the average wedding in Australia cost? Who wants to take a guess? 20, 20, 65, 45, 75. It really depends on who you ask. Uh, unfortunately, most of the numbers for these sorts of things are reported by the wedding industry, and no surprise, they have a vested interest in the numbers being slightly higher, because then you're prepared to spend a bit more money when it comes time. I've seen numbers ranging from 18,000 through to 65,000, and it doesn't surprise me that the people who are about to have another daughter get married think that it's the 65, and it's okay, guys, it's all right, it's okay, don't go there. Here's uh, one of the numbers, $36,200, these guys reckon is the, this is the average, right? So all it takes is a couple of people spending a million bucks and it skews the numbers quite a lot. But don't worry about it, right? $36,000, the Australian, of which nearly 20 grand is food, alcohol and venue, mind you. So it's quite an extraordinary amount. Notice the little orange line there. How did they pay for it? Out of the people who got married, 60% took out a loan to pay for their marriage. So they started, for their wedding, sorry, so they started their marriage in debt. You look at the little, uh, the little multi-layered cake. This is the sacrifices that people are prepared to make. And I love the one right at the top. 5% of people who get married are prepared to move back in with their parents in order to afford the wedding. Are you kidding me? Surprisingly expensive costs. Photography. <laughs> well, that was last week, Margaret. It's okay, you weren't here. Uh, my mother-in-law is here today, just, just for those who were here last week. Uh, weird wedding costs. Transport. Helicopters. Not bad. An elephant. I mean, who... who? Anyway, donkeys. And, of course, the ever-classy pink Cadillac, right? That's what people spend their money on for their weddings. Decorations. Custom-made bobbleheads of the bride and groom. I think over there, you get an ideas there, Ken, got bobbleheads. Perhaps the parents of the bride need to have their, their bobbleheads represented. So this, this is what Australians are spending on their wedding because for many of them, the wedding is the point of getting married. They're already living together. I mean, four out of five couples in Australia cohabitate before they get married. They're already certainly having sex. That's the point of living together. Some of them will even already have kids. They have a mortgage that they've taken... But, Really, the only point of getting married is the wedding, and so we spend so much money on the wedding. It's a real problem. In fact, it becomes even more of a problem when you compare that to the divorce statistics. How many people out of these who are getting married are getting divorced? Now, I want to show you just that one number in the bottom right-hand corner. One in three marriages in Australia will end in divorce, 36%. So we take out a loan to pay for a wedding that's only going to last, well, a marriage, 10 years, and then we go our own way. What is it that these relationships, what is it that these marriages need in order to make them last? And the answer we'll see today is, in fact, true love. Now, not, I, feel, I feel a little bit Hollywood, right? A little bit Disney princess, a little bit Shrek and Fiona kind of. What you, what you need is true love and for you both to be ogres or whatever it is. But we're going to see what real true love 
<laughs> Interesting who celebrated that line, the, the two arrogant things. Anyway, uh, what we need is true love. And we're going to come to that in a moment. But first I want to invite you to a wedding. It is, in fact, the wedding of the lover and the beloved in the Song of Songs. So flick back, if, you, if you're still your Bible in 1 John, flick back to the song, page 659 in the Pew Bibles. This passage, these, these couple of chapters, really are the heart of the song. They're, they're the culmination, the climax, if you like, of their relationship. In fact, in 4.16 and 5.1, those two verses are the very centre of the book, 111 lines either side, for those who care. In some way, these verses are a commentary or, or a, perhaps better, an, an example, an illustration of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Right back at the beginning when God made marriage. It speaks of as the man meets the woman, flesh of his flesh, it says, for this reason a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now in this chapter we're going to see exactly that progression, the father leaving his mother and father, the, the man leaving his father and mother, being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. So firstly then, verses 6 to 11 in chapter 3, the man leaves his father and mother. Who is this coming up from the desert? Like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it's Solomon's carriage. Escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Here is a man leaving his mother on the day of his wedding as he heads off. Now, what is it with men and cars? I mean, we're told about here comes Solomon to his wedding and what is described is the car. Right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's his carriage, the warriors and what it's made out of and... Now, I took the opportunity this week uh, to, to go back and, and find the archives, find our wedding photos. And, of course, one of, the, one of the few things that I had choice over in our wedding was, as it turned out, well, actually, I had two choices. I, I got to choose the car that we drove away in and my socks. They were the two things that I got to choose uh, on, on our wedding day. And, I, look, I found a photo of it. There you go. There's, um, there's, there's a young David. That's, that's me kind of on, on the, the top. And uh, this is before the wedding, you'll be glad to know. I didn't drive off with my best man and leave a duenna in another car. This this was us arriving. Uh, there was a lovely little blue MG we borrowed from some friends. Here is Solomon coming in his carriage to meet his bride. Although we're kind of left with this question, is it really Solomon? Who is it that this woman is about to marry? Now, who remembers, who knows, how many wives Solomon had? Well, let's, let's have a guess. Yeah, you guys know it. You're nerdlingers. Have a crack. 300, that's not a bad guess. 300 is how many concubines he had. 700 is the number of his wives. Or have I got it the wrong way around? Is it one or the other? 1 Kings chapter 11. Either way, he married an awful lot of foreign women. All of royal birth, we're told. It's in 1 Kings chapter 11. And in fact, it was Solomon's greatest failure. 
He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. 1 Kings chapter 11. How is it that Solomon, a man with a man with 700 wives, can write this story about this well, the wedding, the wedding of the Bible? Which of the 700 was it? Was it the first one? Was it the 700th? Is this the 701st? And that's why he stopped because he finally found a good one. I, I, for many commentators and, and people over the years, this has been a real problem. How is it that Solomon can be the one that is getting married here? And so they'll try and explain it away, right? It isn't really Solomon getting married because we know that it's a peasant girl. So surely she would have married a peasant guy. And, and Solomon, well, maybe he was invited for some reason to the wedding or maybe this is a song. I don't know. They try and come up with all sorts of ways of explaining it. Maybe it's a dream. I think Joe did a very great service for us in our first week when he spoke about the characters in this song. See, who is it that is getting married? Well, it's Mr. Peace. That is Solomon, Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. It is Mr. Peace who is going to marry Mrs. Peace, the Shulamite. This isn't necessarily a specific one of Solomon's weddings, but rather it is the wedding of the man and the woman. It is the quintessential wedding, if you like, the, the ideal wedding, the grandest wedding of them all. It is a woman who is marrying her prince, her Solomon, her man, her peace. Now, as an aside, I've had people say to me before, well, talking about marriage and kind of the marriage debates that are happening in society at the moment, people have said to me, well, the Bible endorses polygamy. So what can Christians possibly have to speak into this? Are you for polygamy? Are we going to have men marrying multiple women and, and all that kind of gear going on? Now, the reality is that in the Bible there are polygamous marriages described. Solomon, classic example, right? 700 of the wives, 300 concubines. I assume the concubines were for nights when none of the 700 wives were in the mood. I mean, that's the only reason I can assume why you've got three. Anyway, the thing is, none of the polygamous marriages in the Bible are ever commended. Not one of them. In fact, for most of them, the reality of marrying multiple women is what led them astray. Solomon married 700 women from all sorts of other nations, and in 1 Kings 11 we read, they took him away from the true worship of God. The consequence of which, that the kingdom was torn away from his son. It's an extraordinary condemnation of his marriages to these women. Now, the reality is that from the beginning, one man and one woman are the marriages that God has designed to be. So this man, this Solomon, this prince of peace, leaves his father and mother and is joined then, is united to his wife. Now, I think from the beginning of chapter 4, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the wedding night. It's veiled. It's poetic. It's not crude, crass, it's not intrusive, but that's what we're getting a little glimpse of. And so he describes her, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them. Now, it's kind of strange imagery, right? The poetry, perhaps we have a little bit of chuckle over, right? I mean, I, I, you, you could try that line on your wife if you want, gents. I can't promise uh, any particular kind of results, right? Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. 
Your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of incense. See, it's funny poetry to us. And let's be honest, it's because it looks like this. Uh, someone, someone's drawn a, a, a very helpful picture for us. There's the, the flock of goats coming down the hair and the, the lovely sheep for teeth and the, the neck and, of course, the, the, the two fawns playing down the bottom. It's, it's, um, I tried a few of these lines on Edwina. They didn't really work, right? Your sheep, your, your teeth are like sheep. You, Okay, they're a bit furry, I need to brush. I mean, what are you, what are you telling me with these lines, right? It's, and yet for him, as he gazes upon his beloved, all he sees is her beauty. This is his language, his poetry, his imagery, as he looks upon her and sees his bride, her beauty, her perfection. I mean, the, the closest I can get to showing this to you is to show you a picture of my bride. Here is the beauty. It's, it's the one on the right, in case you're wondering. That's, that's Edwina. As she gazed upon me, right there she is, the lovely, adoring gaze, the beauty behind the veil, the eyes like doves, the hair like a flock of... Well, you know... And then, of course, she was walking towards... Well, there's, there's, uh, there's the young man that she's approaching. But it's, it's the beauty of the lovers in their marriage. And so here, what happened? Thanks, Andrew. I asked myself the same question. Uh, she stayed exactly the same. And I, well, anyway. So verse 7, right? By the time he summarizes it all, this is how he describes her. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. I reckon there were some flaws. I mean, maybe she was a bit short or too tall or something. Maybe one leg was slightly different length than the other or... You know, a lot of freckles from the sun. I love freckles, but maybe the hands are calloused from her. I'm sure there would have been flaws, and yet as he looks at her, he can say, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is not a flaw in you. Now, maybe it's romantic. Maybe it's a bit sappy. Maybe it's a bit soppy. But I reckon, gents, our standard of beauty needs to be our wives. Our standard of beauty ought to be the woman you are married to. And so she is beautiful and she will be beautiful all the days of her life. For by definition she is beautiful. And that may take work. Right? It might not be that you just look at her and go, Whoo, must have, I, hope, I hope that's the case, but maybe not. And maybe you've got to work at it and you've got to learn to love her for who she is and for what she has. And women, the same for you with your men. How, when was the last time... Married couples, when was the last time you stopped and looked each other in the eyes and spoke of the things you love of one another? I love your hair. I love your eyes. I love your arms. I love your feet. I love your breasts, those twin fawns. Great for patting, right? I love your strength and I love your caring and I love your... When was the last time you did that? You don't have to use his language. okay? This is his language for her, but you have your own. Let her be your standard of beauty. 
such that you will love her and in her see no flaws. Such that you can genuinely say to her through your married life, you are beautiful. She may not believe you, gents, and so you need to say it a lot, such that she knows it to be true. And so he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. Your lips drop sweetness. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Let's marry. As he meets his bride, as he invites her out of the depths of his love to come and be his. And so thirdly, the two become one flesh. I take a chapter 4 from verses 12 on. We're, again, we're getting a very veiled little glance into the wedding night. It's intimate, it's veiled, but it is nonetheless imagery of them making love. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus, cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water, streaming down from Lebanon. She is a garden locked up, a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Here he is praising her virginity, praising that the garden that is her body, she has maintained, sealed for him. It's a beautiful thing, and it is utterly countercultural. That you would still be a virgin when you get married these days is something to laugh at and to scorn and to mock rather than a thing of beauty. Hear the affirmation that he has for her. I think there is so much regret in those who marry who have had past sexual experience. I know from conversations with many that they wish things were different than how they have been. And so if you are single and you hope to be married, save yourself for then. And so she says, verse 16, awaken. No longer the time to hold back No longer the refrain from last week, do not arouse or awaken love, but now awaken, north wind. Come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. And so he says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. What was her garden is now his garden. And I take it that this goes both ways. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 7 last week, her body belongs to him, his body belongs to her. And so they are intimate. It's not just sex, they are making love. A beautiful mutuality. And so we finish with perhaps one of the strangest verses, or it could be one of the weirdest verses in the whole book, but I think in fact is tremendous. Eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. Now, it could be really perverted. What are the friends doing in the room while they're having their business? But it's not. It's the author of the book. It's the one looking in. It is, in fact, God's approval upon what they are doing. Eat, O friends. Drink. 
Drink your fill, O lovers. Be intoxicated. Be filled, for it is love that will keep you together. Not, not Hollywood romance, not the fireworks, not the passion of the first few years, but love, true love, deep love, self-sacrificial love. Now I want to point out six aspects of this love for you, and they all come from chapter 8. So I turn over to chapter 8 of the song. We're going to jump around a little bit, and next week we're going to do a few more, uh, a little bit of jumping around as well. But chapter 8 and verses 6 and 7, we learn six things about true love, and they all start with P. There you go. Firstly, true love is possessive. Song chapter 8 and verse 6. Place me, she says, like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now we know what a seal does, right? You, You mark something that's yours. In one sense, the modern equivalent is the ring. I have Edwina's ring upon me. She has my ring upon her. This is a symbol that we are each other's. It's the uh, the refrain from two weeks ago. My beloved is mine and I am his. However, being possessive doesn't mean that it is up to me to enforce her to be mine. It's not a possession that takes, but a possession that gives. It is a possessiveness that says, I have given myself to my wife and she has given herself to me. It's not a demanding possessiveness. Well, you're mine, therefore you have to do X, Y and Z. But rather is, I am yours. What can I do to please you? Please don't mishear this. Because if you misunderstand this and you think that you have a right to demand, you're going to end up in some really terrible places. I've heard the story uh, of, of somebody who'd just given birth and, uh, and as the wife was in the hospital with her baby, uh, another woman was brought in who also had just given birth and not long after her husband entered the hospital and demanded his rights as a husband with her. That she have sex with him in the hospital, having just given birth, because he said, you are mine. Please don't misunderstand. This is not a possessiveness that takes, but a possessiveness that gives. I am yours. How can I care for you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? True love is possessive. True love, secondly, is permanent. She continues, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy or it's passion unyielding as the grave. True love is permanent. It lasts all of our lives. Our lives are spent loving. And so clearly it's not the passion of the first couple of years. It's not the excitement and the bubbles But it is the dedication, as Matt and Mandy so helpfully pointed out to us, it's the decision, the action that you take, the choice to love. I think that no-fault divorce has harmed marriage. Back in the 1970s, 1975, the Family Act brought in, essentially, as long as you were separated for 12 months, that's it, that's enough for you to be divorced. There doesn't have to be any reason really other than that. I mean, forget about the bit where you promised that you were going to stay married until you die. Just forget that the baby it doesn't matter. They just you can divorce however you like. Easy come, easy go. 
Whereas true love, God's love, is permanent. It lasts until death. Thirdly, true love is protective. Again, it's jealousy, it's passion, unyielding as the grave. There is a determination to protect the other in the desire to do good. And I want to I put a warning out there in light of this. I, reflecting upon, uh, upon protection, there are many areas of life where I feel the call of Jesus to turn the other cheek. I mean, that's, that's the attitude of the Christian is the one that seeks love and good rather than retaliation and vengeance. But I think if I reflect upon my life, there's one area where I'm going to struggle if it ever happens, and that is somebody seeking to harm my wife or my children. Or even worse, and God forbid, and I, I, I have full confidence in my wife, but adultery to occur, the 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 effect that it has upon people is unparalleled. The writer of the Proverbs, again, quite possibly Solomon himself, puts it like this in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6 and verse 32. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. His shame will never be wiped away, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury. And he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. There is something about adultery that is immensely destructive, that arouses passions like no other. And so please, I plead with you, don't pursue sexual intimacy with somebody else's husband, with somebody else's wife. Consequently, if you're married, sex stays in that relationship. For true love is truly protective. Fourthly, true love is powerful. Back in Psalms chapter 8, verse 6, love burns like a blazing fire like a mighty flame. Love compels us to act. It's a driving force, as we'll see in a moment in 1 John 4. Fifthly, true love perseveres. Many waters, verse 7, cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. Nothing can crush it. We are called to persevere no matter the circumstances. There's, um, there's a poem that was written. Let me, let me find it for you. It illustrates this very well, just to give us a little mental break. Written by a Bree Carter. There you go. And a, and a young man wrote, sent the first two stanzas of this poem to his, uh, to his beloved. It goes like this. For you I would climb the highest mountain peak. Swim the deepest ocean. Your love I do seek. For you I would cross the rivers most wide, walk the hottest desert sand, to have you by my side. And then the young man wrote in the postscript down the bottom, I'll, uh, I'll be over Saturday night if it doesn't rain. <laughs> we laugh at him, right? We chuckle at his fickleness. True love perseveres through all things. And that is the expression of our marriage vows, to have and to hold in sickness, in health, riches, poverty, the good times and the bad, until death do us part. And so true love 
is utterly precious. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. How do you get it? How do you get this true love? If, uh, if Hollywood is to be believed, if, if the movies are anything to go by, right? Uh, the, here's one quote, there is never a time or place for true love. It happens accidentally, in a heartbeat, in a single flashing, throbbing moment. Is that, is that true? true? You, you just get it or you don't? It just, right? Cupid strikes you or Cupid doesn't? Is that really how it is? Here's another quote. See if you can spot the movie. Winning that ticket, Rose, was the best thing that ever happened to me. It brought me to you. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful and on it goes, right? Anyone know it? I'm kind of glad you don't. It's Titanic, right? He's, here's what he's saying. I, I won a ticket to a boat and it just so happened that getting on this boat means I met you and, and that's how you get love is you just got to get lucky. And Is that it? I mean, is that that would be a pretty lame sermon if, if that really is true love. Yeah, I hope you get it and we walk out the door, right? No, that's not it. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. That's second reading. It's right towards the back of your Bible. How do you get true love? Well, first of all, you have to know love. That is, you have to have been loved yourself. Dear friends, John writes, let's love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. So you want to know what love is? You want to know what true love is and where it comes from? It comes from God. And even more so, this is how God showed his love among us, verse 9. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is the true love. This is the love that is utterly and completely possessive. The love of God for us. The love of God by which he purchased us out of sin through the death of Jesus. This is love that is permanent. It is love that will go not just to death, but through death. This is love that is protective of the God who says, you are mine and I will see you to the end. This is love that is powerful as it transforms us to love like him. This is love that perseveres. Even through the death of Jesus, he loved us. This is the love that is truly precious. Do you want to love like Jesus loves? Do you want to love like the lover in the Song of Songs loves? Then you must experience it first yourself. In the love that God has for you that you in turn may love. So verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, in the end, this true love isn't just for marriages. Although it does find a particular expression there, 
This love is love that all Christians ought to have, for it is the love that we have been loved with. And so I want to challenge you. Do you love in this way? Do you love others with the self-sacrificial intent that God loved you? And for those who are married, do you love your spouse as a particular expression of this love? Such that the friends around you are able to say, eat, drink your fill of your love, delight in it and delight in one another as we look forward to the consummation of the great love that is Jesus and his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown, for the love of the Lord Jesus who came and died that we might live. Thank you that he shows us love. Thank you for the lovers in the Song of Songs and and the delight that they take in one another for this example of your love at work. Father, teach us to love. Teach us to love as Jesus loved, that we'd love one another. And Father, we pray for our marriages, that you would enable us to find such delight in one another as this couple did, that we may flee from all forms of sexual immorality that we may live in a way that shows your love to the world. Amen.